Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, it's a little different than Texas. Uh, it's 80 degrees still in Texas, where I'm from. Um, so it was a nice, cool morning. Uh, also, if you're not familiar, I work for an organization called Wall Builders. And Wall Builders, we get our name from the Bible book of Nehemiah. If you remember, Nehemiah was part of the Babylonian captivity. And as he was serving the king, he looked at his, his home and, and looked at Jerusalem and how the walls had been torn down. And he was compelled. He wanted to go rebuild his nation to help bring strength back to his nation. And back in the 80s, my, my dad felt that challenge and call from God, looking at America even then and saying, man, there's so many issues our nation's dealing with. So much is going on. We want to help rebuild America. And in Nehemiah 2.17, it says, come, let us rebuild the walls that we may no longer be a reproach. So that was where he got the name Wall Builders from. It becomes pertinent now that I explain that to people because when we're in Texas and you have a name like Wall Builders and Donald Trump is the president... People get different ideas, right? We don't actually build walls on the border. That's not what we do. But as we get going, we do spend a lot of time talking about the nation. We've been very blessed at Wall Builders that we have the largest collection, it's estimated of, uh, in a private collection of original documents from the founding era. We have more than 120,000 documents, artifacts, and items from before 1812. So we actually have original handwritten letters from George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and John Adams and, I mean, all the founding fathers. It's a really great collection. And so we spend a lot of time trying to help teach people more about our founding. And one of the things that most people don't realize in America today is how special America is. Most Americans have become so spoiled with the blessings of America that we don't realize these are often very unique in America. Such as 244 years ago, we did the Declaration of Independence. Since that time, we have only had one constitution. It's 233 years old. September 17th, we celebrate Constitution Day. Every single September 17th, we set a new world record for being the nation living the longest under a single document. The average length of a constitution in world history is 17 years. Ours is 233 years old, also in America. We only have 4% of the world's population, but every single year we have more inventions, more patents, more medical cures and medical discoveries, more technological inventions and breakthroughs. Our 4% has more every single year than the rest of the 96% of the world combined. What we do every single year, it's amazing what freedom and hard work can produce in a nation, and we have shown just what it does. Also, we enjoy more prosperity in America than anywhere else in the world. With our 4% of the world's population, we account roughly for 25% of the world's wealth. If you live in poverty in America, which we don't want anybody to live in poverty in America, we want everybody to better themselves and, and become a success on whatever level that is, but even if you live in poverty in America, you are more likely to have a telephone, to have a television, to have your own vehicle, to have air conditioning, to have more square footage of living space and eat more red meat than if you lived in the middle class in Western Europe, which is the second wealthiest place in the world. You are better off statistically in poverty in America than middle class anywhere else in the world. We don't recognize how blessed we are in America. And it used to be that people knew America was different for several reasons. And it used to be, historically speaking, people recognized one of the things that made America so different was the impact of the Bible. Today, most people don't know America's special and most people don't know America was influenced by the Bible. I wanna spend a little time and unfold some of this. Because even if we take something as simple as our English language, some of the vernacular we use, most people have no idea it's been shaped by the Bible. But we can point to 257 idioms that are still spoken oftentimes in language today that come directly from the Bible. And if you actually pay attention and just listen when you're out in public, you'll hear some of these phrases. Let me give you a few examples. By the skin of your teeth. Well, here's my two cents. A leopard can't change his spots. There's nothing new under the sun. Well, these are signs of the times. That's a thorn in the flesh from the cradle to the grave. That's handwriting on the wall. A fly in the ointment. An eye for an eye. A house divided against itself can't stand. Well, you gotta fight the good fight. If you live by the sword, you die by the sword. There's no rest for the wicked. Let there be light. My cup runneth over. Go the extra mile and the promised land. Now, this was just what I've heard on ESPN in the last year, Right? This is what is crazy to me. There's 257 idioms. I've just shown like 20, right? This is a thing that is in our still modern common vernacular. People have no idea where this comes from. But the next time, if you go to Walmart, the, the, the next time, if you're at the grocery store, right? You're at the hardware store. If you just listen to people, you will be amazed how the Bible is still impacting even our language today. And I don't think it's because people are necessarily trying to be biblical, Right? I don't think ESPN was like, how can we encourage people spiritually today? I don't think that's their thought. 
right? But when they talk about, can LeBron James lead the Lakers to the promised land? This is just the conversation, right? When Saturday is college football and they talk about, well, this is just a David and Goliath matchup. Where did this idea of David and Goliath come from, right? Arguably, I don't think even people that use that phrase always know who David and Goliath is. And yet the phrase is around. And here's what I would just tell you. If you start listening, you will hear people use these phrase. And if you're ever looking for like this opportunity for evangelism and witnessing, just listen to people. And when they say a Bible phrase, you can walk up and say, hey, did, did you know you just quoted the Bible? And they're going to say, no, I didn't. And like, no, really? Like, I don't mean to be weird in this Walmart checkout line, but you just quoted the Bible. And they're going to say, no, I didn't. And then you do need to pay attention because they might say, oh yeah, well, what did I quote? And then it's helpful to know, right? Well, there's, this is where it came from. Well, there's 257 idioms that are all from the Bible. And here's the thing today, we don't often recognize even the simple ways the Bible has shaped what we do. And this is where I think about a quote from President John Quincy Adams. He was a son of John Adams. And he talked about what it was like growing up in the founding era. Here's one of the things he said. With regard to the history contained in the Bible, it's not so much praiseworthy to be acquainted with it as it is shameful to be ignorant of it. Now that's an interesting thought. On the surface, I would kind of disagree because he said it's not really impressive to know the Bible, but it's shameful. It's embarrassing not to know the Bible. I would, I would disagree. I would say it's actually very impressive to know the Bible, right? It's one of the reasons we're often impressed with pastor, right? Because of like, wow, you know the Bible really, really well, that's an impressive thought for people to know the Bible. So why would he say it's not really impressive to know the Bible, but it's embarrassing not to know it? Well, it's a reflection of the era in which they grew up. And let me give you an example. If I said today, what is two plus two? I'm not impressed if anybody knows it's four because everybody should know it's four. That should be obvious. But it would be embarrassing if you didn't know two plus two was four. Why? Because for you not to know what should be obvious would be embarrassing. This is the reflection of their culture. See, back then when the Bible was the number one textbook that people used to learn to read, everybody knew the Bible. So it wasn't impressive to know what everybody already or should already know, but it would be embarrassing not to know what everybody should know. That's interesting because we've come so far from that today. We don't grow up everybody learning and knowing the Bible, but this is the way it was in the founding era. In fact, even people like Teddy Roosevelt, right? We're more than 100 years past the founding fathers. Teddy Roosevelt talked about the impact of the Bible in America. He said the teachings of the Bible are so interwoven and entwined with our civic and social life, it would be impossible for us to figure what life would be if these teachings were removed. Now, notice he says the Bible has so shaped our civic and social life. It didn't just shape the spiritual life of the church. It shaped what we did in America, civil, social. So civil is like all government political arena, right? Social is all our interactions with people. So everything we're doing has been shaped by the Bible. Today, most people have no idea what he's talking about. But he says, if you remove the teachings of the Bible, you wouldn't recognize America. Why? Because so much of what we do in America was because of the Bible. The reason we started a Republican form of government in the era of monarchs was because of the Bible. The reason we had the freedom of religion in an era when nations didn't have the freedom of religion back then, kings chose a denomination, whether it was Catholic or Anglican or Lutheran, they chose a denomination and everybody had to be where they chose. And we said, no, 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 in America, we believe in the freedom for people to choose according to the dictates of their own conscience. We started public schools in America, educating boys and girls at a time when that wasn't going on anywhere else in the world. We did so many things because of the Bible, and this used to be known. So when he says, if you remove the Bible, you wouldn't recognize America, it's because of how much the Bible had shaped what we did in America. Even things we still do today, most people don't know were, again, influenced or shaped by the Bible. But even people like FDR acknowledged the impact of the Bible in America. He said, in the formative days of the Republic, the directing influence the Bible exercised upon the fathers of the nation is conspicuously evident, meaning... It was obvious that the founding fathers were impacted and shaped by the Bible. He continued, we cannot read the history of our rise and development as a nation without reckoning with the place the Bible is occupied in shaping the advances of the Republic. So he says, you can't read history without acknowledging every time we made significant advances or improvements in the nation, it was because of the impact of the Bible. Well, it's interesting. He says, you can't read history and not see how the Bible shaped America because I would contend you could read almost any modern history book and you would not see 
how the Bible shaped America. And there's, there's really two reasons that I would say we don't really see the Bible's true impact on America. Number one, because we don't really know history very well. But number two, because we don't really know the Bible very well. And there's a lot of times people study history, but because they don't know the Bible, they don't recognize what was being done was based on the Bible. Let me give you an example. You could take who is considered the least religious founding father, Benjamin Franklin. Now, again, nobody really argues he's the least religious founding father, but least religious doesn't mean anti-religious, which sometimes people mistake and think, oh, well, he must have hated God. That's not true at all. And I can show you a lot of his writings. People accuse him of being a deist. If you read his autobiography, he says that he was a deist in his 20s. And then read two sentences later. And he says, but I soon gave that up because I saw it was not advantageous and it benefited nobody. So I quickly left that thought behind. He was a deist for like a week and a half. And people say, well, even he said he was a deist. Yes, and then two sentences later, he said he stopped it because it didn't make any sense. This is a guy that when you read his writings, it's very interesting. Now, I wouldn't argue he's a Christian because I don't think he was. The reason I say that is because with roughly three months left of his life, he got a, a letter from the president of Yale University, Ezra Stiles, who was a pastor. And, and this was several years after the revolution, after the constitution. So it's, it's many years later now. And Ezra Stiles writes Franklin and says, hey, at Yale, we are doing a, a special portrait hall to honor significant leaders in America, to honor some of the founding fathers. In your many years, you've probably had many paintings. Would you mind sending us at Yale one of your paintings? And we want to put up a painting of Benjamin Franklin on the wall. And so this is what Ezra Stiles is asking him. And then in the end of the letter, Ezra Stiles says, now, there's one more thing I want to know. Please don't take this the wrong way. I don't mean to be offensive. He said, I wish everybody were as I am, except for my faults, when it comes to my relationship with Jesus, when I know him as friend and as savior and as a son of God. And he goes through and talks about Jesus and he finishes and says, Mr. Franklin, I would like to know where do you stand when it comes to your position of Jesus? He says, again, I mean, no offense. And if this is an offensive question, don't even answer it, but could we still have a painting? Franklin writes him a letter back. And in Franklin's letter back, first of all, he addresses the painting and it's kind of funny because you see Franklin's wit coming out very often. Um, Franklin says, I have had many paintings, but I don't like any of them because in all of them, I look old and fat. And <laughs> I don't want to be remembered as being old and fat, which, right, is just humorous on a lot of levels. It's like, well, dude, if the shoe fits, I don't know what to tell you, right? Like, this is just where you are now. And he says, but there's a new painter in town. I will sit for this painter. And if, if it's good, I will give you that painting. He says, now, in regard to your question about Jesus, he says, I'm not offended that you ask. He says, but this is a question that should not be answered lightly, that before someone says, what do you think about Jesus? They probably should have really studied and known about Jesus. Franklin says, I've never studied to know if he is divine or not. So, so, so I don't know if he truly is a son of God. What I do know is he's the greatest moral teacher there ever was. What I do believe, and here's my statement of faith, is I do believe in a God who is the creator of the universe, that he will reward the, the good and he will punish the wicked. I do believe that he sent us the scriptures to give us direction, that they are divine revelation, they should be believed. I'm just not sure that Jesus is, is truly divine, that he is God himself. And Franklin then has a PS at the end. He says, but please don't tell anybody what I'm telling you because I have worked my entire life in America trying to be a friend of everybody and of many different denominations. I've printed all their sermons. I've printed their pamphlets. I've printed their tracts. And I wouldn't want them to think less of me because I've tried to be as best a friend as I could. So please don't tell anybody. And Franklin dies just a couple months later. Now, is it possible that in his last couple months, the Holy Spirit's working on his heart and he's going, well, let me check into this Jesus guy. Oh, it's very possible. But up to that point, Franklin believed Jesus was maybe a good teacher, that, that he was a great moral guy, but not divine. Now, that's the reason I bring this up, because I'm not arguing Franklin's a Christian, but I will point out Franklin was influenced by the Bible. For example, if you look at the Constitutional Convention, this is 11 years after they did the Declaration. They're back in Independence Hall. Franklin is one of six guys who signed the Declaration and signed the Constitution. But when they came together for the Constitutional Convention, there was a lot of friction. There was a lot of frustration, a lot of problems. They were not getting along at all. It got so bad that delegates from Virginia, it was reported they got up and they left the convention because they said, this is dumb. We've been here a month. This isn't getting done. We're wasting our time. We're going home. George Washington, it was reported. He was a leader of the convention. He chased down George Mason in his carriage and he said, Mason, 
right? We, we just went through a revolution trying to become a nation. We cannot abandon this so soon. And Mason tells Washington, we'll all come back out of respect for you, but I don't think this is ever gonna work. In the midst of this frustration, Benjamin Franklin, who was the old man of the convention, he got up on June 28th, 1787, and he gave the longest speech he gave during the entire convention. And this was his proposed solution to how they could overcome the problems they were dealing with. Here's what he said he thought would be the best solution. He said, in this situation of this assembly, groping as it were in the dark to find political truth, and scarce able to distinguish it when presented to us, how has it happened, sir, that we have not hitherto once thought of humbly applying to the Father of lights to illuminate our understanding? Meaning, why haven't we prayed and asked God for help? He continued, in the beginning of the contest with Great Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room for divine protection. Our prayers were heard and they were graciously answered. All of us engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of a superintending providence in our favor. And have we now forgotten this powerful friend? Or do we imagine we no longer need his assistance? I have lived, sir, a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs the affairs of men. If a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire could rise without his aid? We have been assured in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this. And I also believe without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. And we shall become a reproach and a byword down to future ages. I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth, prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessing on our deliberation be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business. Now, this is the least religious founding father. And his challenge was, we need to pray and ask God for help because without God's help, we're not gonna do a very good job. Now, I pointed out the reason I think today that people don't really recognize the influence of the Bible is number one, we don't know history very well. And then number two, we don't know the Bible very well because even if we studied history, we don't always recognize the Bible when it is there in history. So here's what I wanna do. I just read 14 sentences and the question I wanna know is how many Bible verses did Franklin quote or reference? Now, you don't have to say it out loud, but I want you to think about it. So in 14 sentences, how many verses did you recognize? And the reason you don't have to say it out loud is because if you're wrong, that's embarrassing. And if you're right, I don't want you to be full of pride. So just process it, right? In 14 sentences, Franklin referenced or quoted 14 different verses. Here's why this is significant. Because if you don't know the Bible, you could even read history and you would go, well, yeah, that was kind of religious. You wouldn't recognize how religious it actually was or what he actually was referencing as strongly as he was, you might've recognized one or two verses, maybe three or four verses, probably not 14 verses. And this is the point, is that we don't see the influence of the Bible because we don't know the Bible always well enough to recognize it, or we don't know history well enough to see when it was used. And let me point out, Franklin, as the least religious founding father, gets up and gives a speech, and in 14 sentences or 14 verses, how in the world did Franklin know that? Well, Jesus said it's out of the abundance of the heart. The mouth speaks. You only can have coming out of you what you have put in you. Franklin apparently knew the Bible very well. I would argue Franklin knew the Bible better than most Christians do today because he just knew it that well. And this is what we see looking at history. Now, it's also worth noting that as this unfolds, Franklin's proposals get tabled and, and, and George Washington says they actually took three days off. He called it a cooling off period, right? Like we just need a timeout. Everybody's frustrated. Let's take a timeout. But George Washington says that they went to church during those three days, that that long weekend they took. And the Reverend William Rogers was the one who led them in prayer and in spiritual orations for three days. When they returned, there are delegates like Jonathan Dayton who wrote that the entire atmosphere changed when they returned because where there had been a spirit of division, there was now a spirit of unity and peace. And they were able to get along and they were able to get things done. And over the next several weeks, they were able to write what has become known as the most successful governing document in the history of the world. And where did these ideas come from? Well, if you read the Constitution and you know the Bible, there are some things you will recognize verbiage or phrasing from and go, that sounds familiar. And then if you read their writings, in many of their writings, they say, we had to do it this way because of what the Bible says here. For example, Jeremiah 17, 9, Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, George Washington, and John Adams, all of them talked about that the reason we could not have centralized power 
is because we can't trust man because of the depravity of man. But what they say is because the heart of man is wicked and sinful and no one knows it. Well, if you know Jeremiah 17, 9, it says the heart of man is wicked and deceitful above all else, right? No man knows it. They actually are quoting a verse as to their explanation for why we cannot centralize power, why we need a separation of powers, why there needs to be checks and balances. Some of this stuff was very clear in their writings today because we don't know history, we don't know the Bible, we don't always see these connections, but this is where even people like President Andrew Jackson, who was one of the least religious presidents in our history, he did get saved at the very end of his life, but his life was a very rough life. He was really bad in a lot of areas, Even Andrew Jackson acknowledged the Bible is the rock upon which our republic rests. It it, it was just evident, right? Even the people who weren't religious, even the people who weren't Christians at that time recognized, well, yeah, the, the Bible has influenced almost everything we do in America. This is what was known to be true. And today people don't see that. But again, when you study history, if you go back to when we do the Declaration of Independence, there's people like Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, James Wilson, and Benjamin Rush, all of them said that the ideas for the declaration came largely from John Locke's two treatises of government. Richard Henry Lee said the declaration was nothing more than a copy of of, of John Locke's two treatises of government. Why does that matter? If you've never read John Locke's two treatises, John Locke was writing in response to Sir Richard Fillmore in England. And Sir Richard Fillmore was writing in defense of the divine right of kings. And this guy in England says that kings were always God's idea. God loves kings. And then he says, in fact, if you read in Genesis, Adam was the very first king of the Bible. And then Seth was the second king. Adam's son was the second king of the Bible. And, he, and this guy goes through the worst biblical exegesis ever and says, right, that, that God has always had kings and, and kings are always God's ideas and, and kings speak for God and they represent God and you need to obey whatever the king says because he's speaking for God. So John Locke, when he writes back his first treatise, he says, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. He says in Genesis, God made Adam and Eve and God made them sovereign over themselves and over none other. God gave them individual responsibility where they were in charge of themselves, but they weren't running everybody else's life. But he goes through literally starting in Genesis and then he references more than 1,500 Bible verses explaining God's design and intent for man was individual responsibility, was self-governance, that a king was never God's idea. But here's the point. The founding father said that they based what they did on John Locke's work. Well, John Locke was just doing actual exegesis and rebuttal from what Sir Richard Fillmore had said over in England. This is where the founding father said their ideas came from. Again, a book that was quoting the Bible throughout the entire book. Now, that was a declaration. People say, okay, but the Constitution. Yeah, let's talk about the Constitution. If you go to 1787, when we actually write the Constitution, there was a group of professors who got together and they said, we wanna know what influenced the founding fathers the most. Where did their ideas come from? So they said, we're gonna go through more than 10,000 representative sample writings and, and, and we wanna see who did they quote, who did they reference, who did they cite, who really influenced the founding fathers? They put their findings together in a book called The Origins of American Constitutionalism. And in this, they document the people that were quoted, that were cited, that, 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 the resources that were referenced the most. The number one cited individual was Charles Montesquieu. 8.3% of the quotes came from Montesquieu. The second most cited individual was William Blackstone. He wrote Blackstone's commentaries on the laws of England. The third most cited was John Locke, although... These professors acknowledged that during the American Revolution, John Locke was the most quoted, but they looked at like a 40, 50 year period. So after the revolution, Montesquieu and Blackstone were quoted much more than John Locke. They said that is the first, second, and third most cited individuals, but it was not the most cited source. These professors said the source that was the most cited was the Bible and 34% of all of the references, quotes, and citations in their writings came from the Bible. That's four times more than the most cited individual. The most cited source was the Bible and these professors even broke it down from the Bible. The most cited books of the Bible were Deuteronomy and then Isaiah, which is kind of interesting. Deuteronomy, where there's so much of the law, where Moses explained to the Israelites before they go into the promised land, how life should work, how it should operate, what God's commands are. And then Isaiah with so many prophecies. It's interesting, but nonetheless, even these secular professors, okay? These were not Christian professors, but they were intellectually honest enough to say, well, yeah, the founding fathers, 
what they were most influenced by appeared to be the Bible. This is what used to be known. In fact, President Zachary Taylor, talking again about the impact of the Bible, the influence of the Bible, he said, the Bible is the best of books. I wish it were in the hands of everyone. It is indispensable to the safety and permanence of our institutions. Now, notice the second sentence. The Bible is indispensable to the safety and permanence of our institutions. John Adams said that our constitution was made only for a moral and a religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Why? In America, we believe in giving freedom to people. But freedom only works if you have a moral foundation upon which freedom can operate. If you give freedom to immoral people, what do they do? Well, we've seen some cities burn down pretty recently, right? When you give freedom to immoral people, I mean, Chicago, right? On any given weekend, 40, 50, 60 people die on a weekend, murdered, shot. When you give freedom to immoral people, it doesn't work. And he said, right, the Bible is the only thing that will help our institutions be able to last and exist because it teaches the moral structure that we have to have if freedom is going to work. Now, he goes even further. He says, especially should the Bible be placed in the hands of the young, it is the best school book in the world. I would that all of our people were brought up under the influence of that holy book. Now, notice he says, I wish every kid had this. It is the best school book in the world. Today, we're told you can't have the Bible in schools. That's not the way it used to be. In fact, Benjamin Rush was known as the father of public schools under the Constitution. He served on the first three different presidential administrations. He had signed the Declaration. He helped ratify the Constitution. He was a very, very significant and involved founding father. When we became a nation, there was no Department of Education. So every state was in charge of their own state's education. And he began writing essays. He says, even though every state's independent, there's a few things that every state should have in common when it comes to education. And one of the essays he wrote about what every state should teach was called the Bible in schools. He gave roughly a dozen reasons why we had to teach the Bible in schools. And one of the things he concluded, he says, if we ever remove the Bible from schools, he says, I lament that we would spend so much time and money in punishing crimes that could have been prevented had we instructed the youth in the means of the Bible. That's pretty insightful, recognizing where we are today and what he said would happen if we ever stopped teaching the Bible in schools. Even if you look at the U.S. Supreme Court in 1844, there was a case, Vidal versus Gerard's executors, where the U.S. Supreme Court ruled unanimously that if you were going to be a public school who received government funding in America, you were required to teach the Bible, to promote Christianity, and to allow gospel ministers on campus to evangelize students. And if any public school refused to do that, they would lose their government funding. That was a unanimous Supreme Court decision with public schools, right? Like that's, that's what the school here does. That's a Christian school today. That's not a public school, except that's the way it used to be was public education because we understood how important the Bible was to us being able to function properly as a nation. Now, a lot of that changed when you go forward to 1962 and 1963. 1963 was a case, Abingdon Shimp and Murray Curlett, where the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that said we can no longer have the Bible in schools. And one of the things that they explained for why we can't have the Bible, they actually called in a psychologist as an expert witness that testified about the dangers of the Bible. So when the U.S. Supreme Court delivered their decision of why we can't have the Bible, they quote the psychologist, here's part of what they quoted, for the reason we can't have the Bible in schools. If portions of the New Testament were read without explanation, they could be and had been psychologically harmful to the child. You know, if kids were to read the New Testament without having somebody help them, that might cause brain damage. Now, I can just tell you, as someone, I grew up, our family, we read the Bible together every morning. We would read through the one-year Bible. So we went to the Bible a lot when I was a kid. When I was a freshman, I made a commitment that I wanted to start reading through the Bible by myself. And so I did. So from a freshman coming forward, I've now tried to every year go through the Bible at least once a year. I've gone through the Bible a couple dozen times. The reason I point that out is because I think it's fascinating that they said of portions of the New Testament. Like in all of my readings of the Bible, if we're going to talk about one of the Testaments where there could be some issues for kids, like had you said the Old Testament, I'd have been like, yeah, you got a point. There's a few places, right? The New Testament? What's the most graphic thing that happens in the New Testament? I mean, I would argue it's a crucifixion of the Savior of the world. And, and what the psychologist said is, well, we can't have kids reading the New Testament. It might cause brain damage. This is literally what was ruled 
1963 to say the Bible could no longer be taught in public schools. So, so this is when the Bible came out of public schools. And one of the things that Benjamin Rush pointed out, why we need to teach the Bible in schools, and, and this, this is back in the founding era, right? this is under George Washington. One of the things he explained is the Bible, when not read in schools, is seldom read in any subsequent period of life. If you don't learn to do the right thing when you're a kid, it's really hard to learn to do it when you're older, right? If you didn't learn to make your bed as a kid, you're not making it as an adult. And that's just the reality. You learn the habits you're going to carry with you in life often when you're very young. And this is what he says. If we're not teaching it to kids, then we're probably not gonna get what we want in the future. Well, if you look today inside America or even inside the church, okay, there is what's called widespread biblical illiteracy that even Christians don't know the Bible very well at all. People that have been in church their whole life, we don't know the Bible very well. And this is what the founding fathers of Benjamin Russia, this is the result of not learning the Bible when we were in schools. Now, with all that being said, if we talk about issues in culture today, the Bible deals with every single topic, with every single issue imaginable that we are dealing with in culture. The Bible gives specific verses, specific guidance, outlines for this. But as Christians, if we don't know what the Bible says, then we don't know how to properly apply the Bible to where it fits in a category. And this is where today, I would again, I would just challenge us that we probably don't know the Bible as well as we should. And one of the things Benjamin Rush said about the Bible is that it contains more knowledge necessary to man in his present state than any other book in the world. Meaning the Bible is the best self-help book you will ever read, right? It has more practical knowledge. For example, if you said, man, I'm just not sure what to do with, with my family. Here's the idea. You should read the Bible and then do what it says, Right? Uh, my, my marriage, my relationship, it's, I, we're having a lot of trouble right now. I don't know what to do. Here's an idea. You should read the Bible and do what it says, right? Well, how am I going to raise my kids? Here's an idea. Read the Bible and do what it says. Why? Because the Bible is the most practical book you will ever read. The Bible wasn't written as a spiritual devotional. The Bible was written as a life manual, right? How do we have success in business? How do we have success in relationships? How, how do we do this God's way, which is the best way to do it? And this is what was explained. And it used to be in America when people read the Bible, they read it differently than we read it today. And oftentimes they came to a different result or conclusion than we did. For example, if you look for examples historically, there's a lot of fun ones. Matthew Mari is a really good example. Matthew Mari was a guy from the 1800s who is known as the father of oceanography because he discovered there are actual currents in the ocean. In the 1800s, he discovered that. There's no GPS, right? There, there's, there's, there's no kind of radar, sonar. Like how in the world? There's no satellites to look down and see. How did you discover this? One day, he was in a carriage. He got thrown from the carriage. He broke a leg. And so he's at home recovering. While he's at home recovering, he's feeling terrible. He had his young daughter come in and read the Bible to him. His daughter was reading the Bible. And as she was reading it, he heard a verse and went, wait a second, read that to me again. So she read it again. He said, okay, re read it again. And the records indicate that he had her read this verse over and over and over. He said, I, I, I just need to keep hearing this. There's something standing out to me in this. Well, the verse that he had her read over and over was Psalms 8.8. Here is what he was having her read and see if you notice what he noticed. It says, thou madest man to have dominions over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field and the fowl of the air and the fish of the sea and whatsoever passes through the paths of the sea. And he heard paths of the sea and said, hold up. 1800s, we know what paths are, right? You got your human paths, your deer paths, your rabbit paths, right? We know what paths are. And he says, the Bible says there's paths in the sea. So he dedicated, right? Kind of in his, himself determined that as soon as I get better, I'm gonna go look, are there actually paths in the sea? So he goes and looks and guess what he finds? There actually are paths in the sea. There are currents in the ocean. And while he also is in the midst of recovering, again, daughter's reading the Bible to him. He found Ecclesiastes 1.6 as she's reading it to him. And again, it stuck out to him differently. It says, the wind goes toward the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. And he thought circuit, it would, it would seem like maybe... There's, there's some kind of pattern or there, there's some kind of sequence, something's going on. So he decides not only is he gonna look for, for paths in the sea, 
He's going to investigate. Well, he's the guy who discovered there actually are different kind of jet streams and air currents. And he became known as the father of naval meteorology. He was able to tell ships, if you will get on this current, and at this time of year, the wind's coming from this direction, he was able to help them navigate and take weeks off of their trips across the ocean. He really was a brilliant guy. And, and in the midst of discovering this, he told people, like, I was just reading the Bible, and here's what the Bible said. Well, then he began to be criticized by some of these scientists saying, well, you can't use the Bible for that. The, the Bible's not a scientific book. So he wrote a letter back in defense of what he had done. And, and here's part of what he said in his letter. I've been blamed by men of science, both in this country and in England, for quoting the Bible in confirmation of the doctrines of physical geography. The Bible, they say, was not written for scientific purposes and is therefore of no authority in matters of science. I beg pardon. The Bible is authority for everything it touches. The Bible is true and science is true. They are both true. And when your men of science with vain and hasty conceit announce the discovery of disagreement between them, rely upon it. The fault is not with the witness or his records, but with the worm who attempts to interpret evidence which he does not understand. Now, his argument is, is every time that scientists think the Bible is wrong, it's because they haven't done their science properly. Okay, now, I would totally agree with that because I believe the Bible is true. It's the accurate, inerrant, inspired word of God, and we can trust what it says. But I think it's interesting, even looking at what we see in science today, where right now, Current data and polling shows us that from scientists, the majority of scientists are now in favor of the thought of intelligent design because they're recognizing the complexity of the earth is so great that there had to have been some level of intelligent designer. Now, they're not ready to say it's God, but they think some level of intelligent designer. But with this being said, if you're now acknowledging intelligent designer, all that means is you finally caught up to Genesis 1-1, right? Like, we already knew this all along, that there was an intelligent designer that in the beginning God created, but now the majority of scientists are acknowledging and recognizing there had to be intelligent design. John Adams, in several letters, talks about we cannot centralize government. I mentioned this earlier. We can't centralize government because the heart of man is deceitful and wicked and it can't be trusted. This was part of even Reformation theology. Part of the depravity of man was something that was known and taught in Reformation theology. And again, Multiple letters from John Adams where he's citing an actual Bible verse for something we actually did in our government, in our constitution. And the founding fathers were very clear, where did this idea come from? They quote a Bible when they're doing that. James Kent is known as the father of American jurisprudence. He's the guy that determined we should have a, a different kind of circuit for judges where in, in early America, there were not judges in every town or every uh, community, every county, because we didn't have that many people in every town, community, or county, and we didn't have that many judges. So we would have a judge who would ride from town to town to town, helping see cases when he got to that town, overseeing whatever it was. But what James Kent said is that we should have him get on his horse and this judge should just ride on a circuit from town to town to town judging the people. When he explains why, he says, because if you read in 1 Samuel, it says Samuel got on his ass and he rode from town to town to town judging the people. He said, we should do the same thing. This, he was quoting the King James. Some of you look concerned, okay? This is what he's actually, the guy who establishes court systems in America he is saying the reason we're doing what we do is because of Samuel in the Bible, like literally in his writings. This is because the Bible shaped what they were doing and what they were thinking and how we did things. Benjamin Franklin, he's a guy who established the very first hospital in America. The very first hospital in America is, the, the theme and motto is from actually Luke 10, 35, which Luke 10 is where you have the parable of the Good Samaritan. If you remember the parable of the Good Samaritan, there's a Jewish guy going along, he gets jumped, he's beaten, he's robbed, he's stripped naked, he's left. And then people are walking by the road and nobody helps him, right? These two religious leaders go by, finally a Samaritan comes by. And the Samaritan were the ones who were the most despised by the Jews, right? They, they, they were the half-breeds and, and, and the Jews didn't like them, but the Samaritan saw somebody who in life probably picked on him, made fun of him. They weren't friends in life, but he had compassion. He wants to help this guy. So he picks him up. He puts him on his donkey. He leads him into town. When he gets to town, there is an innkeeper and he goes to the innkeeper and the innkeeper comes out and he says, okay, hey, take care of this guy. The Samaritan gives the innkeeper money. And what he says in Luke 10, 35 is take care of him and I will repay thee. Anything that's left over more than what I've given you, I'll repay thee when I return. Benjamin Franklin, when he does the very first hospital, the seal and motto for the first hospital 
is right here. That is his actual seal and motto, which is there's a man on a donkey, a man leading the donkey. There's an innkeeper. He's given the innkeeper money and below it says, take care of him and I will repay thee. What Franklin said is it is our duty to help our fellow man to the utmost of our ability and we will be repaid for what we have done. With actual seal and motto is the good Samaritan for why we did the first hospital. See, even when we came to wanting to help the poor and needy, where did that idea come from? Christianity is what taught us that. This is the reason we have the first hospital in America. Alexander Hamilton, when he talked about what, how did we get the constitution done? What, what actually happened? He quotes Exodus 31, 18. And he talks about the written constitution came because it was written as with the finger of God. James Madison says something very similar that, that it was the finger of God that helped us write the constitution. And, and what they say becomes very significant if you back up and look at the Bible. Again, you, you don't really understand the connection of, of the Bible in America if you don't study the Bible and study history together and see it. But if you know the Bible, back up to right the end of Genesis and, and, and you're starting with Exodus. So Genesis ends, you have Joseph who's sold into slavery, right? The family comes and they're united. But then Exodus begins with, there's now this new guy in town who does not remember Joseph or his family. There's been several hundred years. So now they're enslaved. So Israelites are enslaved and God sends them a deliverer. So Moses shows up and he's gonna be the deliverer. And what's crazy when you read through, and some of you are confused. Yes, Charlton Heston is not actually Moses. I know, I, I don't have a picture of Moses. So I just found one, right? So Moses shows up to be the deliverer. And if you remember, there were 10 plagues. And here's what's really crazy about this. When Moses, right, does, does this first miracle where, where waters turn the blood, and, and remember, Pharaoh's magicians are like, that's a good trick, but we know that trick. We can do it too. Bring us a bowl of water. And they turn this bowl of water into blood. And they're like, see, we know that trick. So then second plague is frogs. And Pharaoh's magicians are like, no, no, no. We know this trick too. We, we can do this trick. So they made some frogs appear. Now, obviously not the same level God did, but they made frogs appear except when you get to the third one, lice. When, when lice come and they're throughout the land, Pharaoh's magicians, this is in the Bible. Pharaoh's magicians go to Pharaoh and they're like, yeah, we don't know this trick. That, that's a good one. We have no idea how he did this. And actually, if you read in Exodus, here's what it says. All the dust of the earth became lice through all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried with their secret arts to bring forth lice. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. They recognized that this is beyond us. We can't do this. We have no idea how it happened. This is the finger of God. Well, if you keep going through the Bible, right? When, when, when the 10 commandments are done, when Moses gets the 10 commandments, we know they're written with the finger of God. And we know that because what the Bible tells us, when God had finished speaking with Moses upon Mount Sinai, he gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written by the finger of God. Okay, when, when you get to Daniel, Right, Daniel, when, when the king is like, hey, bring out those golden things and whatever, and, and this hand of God appears and starts writing on the wall, meaning, meaning, tekel you farsin. The finger of God appeared and did what nobody could do. Jesus was accused of casting out demons or casting out, yeah, demons by the devil. And he says, you don't understand. Like a kingdom divided itself against itself doesn't stand. That's not how it works. But when he gets to Luke eleven twenty, he says, if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of heaven has come upon you. Now, the finger of God becomes significant. This is used many times throughout scripture. And every time it is used, it represents the power and authority of God, something that man in and of themselves could not do. This is beyond man. Only God could have accomplished this. Only God could have done this. So let me back you up to the Constitution Convention. When you have guys like Alexander Hamilton who talk about how did we accomplish this? How did the constitution actually get written? He says, for my own part, I sincerely esteem the constitution a system which without the finger of God never could have been suggested and agreed upon by such a diversity of interest. Now the finger of God becomes significant because that is a biblical phrase representing the power authority of God, something that God did that man could not do in and of themselves. James Madison, when he talked about the constitution, how did this actually happen? How did this come to be? James Madison says, the real wonder is that the Constitutional Convention overcame so many difficulties and to overcome them with so much agreement was as unprecedented as it was unexpected. It is impossible for the pious man not to recognize in it a finger of that almighty hand which was so frequently extended to us in the critical stages of the revolution. Now, James Madison is acknowledging, right? During the revolution, God's hand was constantly extended helping us. But notice he talked about even the Constitution. It was a finger of that almighty hand like this. We could not have done this by ourselves. God was helping us do this. They acknowledge it. George Washington, again, talking about the constitution, George Washington said, 
As to my sentiments with respect to the new constitution, it appears to me little short of a miracle. It demonstrates as visibly the finger of providence as any possible event in the human affairs can ever designate. So any miracle you can think of, he's like, I'm just gonna tell you this was as big of a miracle as any other you can think about in human affairs. It was the finger of providence. It was the finger of God in our constitution they recognized that this was not something they did of their own genius, that God helped, God showed up, he intervened in what they did. The reason I point this out is because if we just read historically and saw they talked about the finger of God, we might go, okay, so they're kind of referencing something. But when you know that this is actually a biblical thought or a biblical phrase that is used all throughout scripture, you recognize what they're referencing is something more than just a, a biblical idea or maybe a a some kind of providential idea. No, they're actually referencing the fact that God really showed up. And in the midst of this, here's, here's what I wanna finish with a challenge for us. President John Quincy Adams, when he was, after the revolution, I'll talk more about him in, in the Sunday school hour or the small group hour and very impressive life. But when George Washington becomes president, he's chosen to be a diplomat under George Washington. He actually is a diplomat for, for many decades under various presidents. And while he is gone as a diplomat, he has a family back home, and his oldest son was 10 years old growing up while he is a diplomat overseas. So he wrote his son nine different letters encouraging his son specifically how to study the Bible and get the most out of Bible study. Here's one of the things he wrote to his 10-year-old son. No book in the world deserves to be so unceasingly studied and so profoundly meditated upon as the Bible. I have myself for many years made it a practice to read the Bible once every year, and let me just stop there. This was a very common practice. We see this in a lot of founding fathers' writings. They would read through the Bible at least once every year, and this used to be common in Christianity. What's interesting today is the vast majority of Christians have never read the Bible cover to cover. And, and just for a second, I'm gonna step on some toes possibly, okay? If you have been saved more than three years and you've never read the Bible cover to cover, I feel like it would be embarrassing to say you base your life on a book that you've never read. Right, if I was like, you know what, I'm gonna base my life on To Kill a Mockingbird. I've never read it, but I heard it's a good book. That would be weird. Right, as a Christian, we ought to know the book that we're saying we base our life on. Well, it used to be that we'd read it every year. So first challenge, if you've never read the Bible cover to cover, you can read 3.2 chapters a day and you can make it through the entire Bible in less than a year. Three chapters a day, that's no big deal. We can do that. Three and a quarter chapters a day, easy. 15 minutes every day in the morning, evening, whenever you do it. But if you've never read the Bible cover to cover, let me encourage you, read the Bible cover to cover. If you've read it before, you should read it again. If you've read it a dozen times, make it two dozen, right? Every year, this is a really good practice to bring back. And, and, and now he's talking to his 10-year-old son. Here's what he told his 10-year-old son about his Bible study. My custom is to read four or five chapters every morning immediately after rising from my bed. It employs about an hour of my time and seems to me the most suitable manner of beginning the day. Now he read for an entire hour and he read four or five chapters, which is a little more than you have to do to get through the whole Bible in a year. But what was impressive about him, we have some of his, his journals where he would take notes from his Bible study that morning. He was fluent in like eight different languages. He read the Bible every morning in Greek, in Latin, in English, and then he would choose another language, whether French or Russian or German. And in his journal, he would talk about how I really like the way the Russians quoted this verse this morning, but I think the French translation is better on this. He actually would go through all the versions he read, highlighting his favorite verses from those versions in Bible study that morning. I'm just impressed if I read the English version, right? Like forget all the rest, but this is what he did every morning. Well, he tells his 10-year-old son, I've always endeavored to read it with the same spirit, which I now recommend to you. That is with the intention and desire that it may contribute to my advance in wisdom and virtue. And here's what's so to me significant. He's telling his 10-year-old son, the reason we read the Bible every day is to increase our wisdom and our virtue. Wisdom deals with the way we think and virtue deals with the way we live. We should read the Bible every day because we wanna have the mind of Christ. And we should read the Bible every day because we wanna walk in what God has called us to walk in, living the life God's called us to live. This is what he tells his 10-year-old son is we need to read the Bible every single day. Now, in all we've done this morning, I wanna encourage you, what made America so different is the Bible and where we look today in America and we see so many issues and problems in America, I would argue it's because we don't read, steady, and follow the Bible anymore. But I'm not blaming the world for that. 
I don't expect the world to want to read, study, and know the Bible, but I can certainly look at the fact that 70% plus of Americans self-identify as Christians. And I can certainly say as Christians, we for sure ought to be the ones who know the Bible better than anybody else. And the Bible has the answer for every issue we deal with in life, whether it's in relationships, whether it's with family, whether it's on job, or whether it's in a nation. The Bible has the answer. And as Christians, we have to go back and know the answer. Now, for all this, there's so much more we have on our website, wallbrothers.com. We have a brand new book called The American Story. just came out like a week and a half ago. And it's actually a history book. And we start roughly with Christopher Columbus. We go roughly through Abraham Lincoln. And what we do is we just tell the story. Today, so few people know the story of America, where we came from, who these people were, what they actually did. And we, we try to do it in a very honest biblical approach that we tell the whole story. We don't pretend like these people were perfect, but we acknowledge that God used them in really special ways. There's also a great resource called the Founder's Bible. For more than 30 years, we've been studying the founding fathers. And every time we have found them quoting the Bible or saying the Bible is what helped them do what they did in public policy or in government or right, uh, whatever kind of laws or education or medicine, as you go to this Bible, we actually put their quote right by the verse they're quoting, and it's footnoted, so you can go back and read it. There's thousands and thousands of examples in this Founders Bible of how the Founding Fathers say they used this to do what they did. It's also in digital form. If you don't wanna carry around a big, heavy book with you, you can download it on an app. But I wanna encourage us as we finish. Oh, by the way, we're also on social media. We do new videos almost every single week telling some of these stories, talking about things from history. But I wanna finish with a Bible verse that, God told Joshua going into the promised land, Joshua 1.8, he said, constantly think about my word every day and every night so you'll be sure to obey it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. One of the big questions we ask, even now looking into elections, is, is how do we solve problems? How do we fix problems? How, how do we bring an end to this conflict we're dealing with? Well, God told Joshua the key to prosperity and success is study my word and do what it says. I wanna encourage us as Christians that it doesn't matter what level of life we are looking in. Every solution we need in our life, every guidance we need in our life is gonna be found, first of all, in the word of God. That God is getting given guidance for everything we do, whether in our relationships, in our families, in our marriages, with our kids, in our jobs, in our states, or in our nation. God has given us guidance, but as Christians, we have to get back spending more time in his word so we actually know what it says, so we know how to apply it, just like in the early days. Don't read the Bible as a spiritual devotional. Look in it, sing, what did God say? How does that work? How does that apply? Because this is what made America the nation it is. And the only thing, the only hope for our nation is to get back to doing things God's way because God's ways work every time. Thank you guys for letting me share. And pastor, I'll turn it back to you.